production was inspired by a so-called great debate between two iconic contemporary cultural figures, Slavoj Zizek and Jordan Peterson, at an event that occurred in April 2019 in Toronto, Canada. The aim is to provide a new perspective on political and cultural subjects and to shock orthodox thinking, particularly within the dominant left and right framework. There are not many public debates in modern history that put two or more famous figures head-to-head in an ideological battle. I say this while obviously ignoring political debates by politicians at election time. One event that does come to mind happened 50 years ago, in April 1971, in the New York City Town Hall. This debate, or confrontation, was between the famous author Norman Mailer and a coterie of feminists, in particular Germaine Greer. That debate was also farcical and chaotic, yet it showed more conflict, provocation and excitement. Compare that event from 50 years ago to the non-event of the debate between Peterson and Zizek. We might well say male, pale and stale. There has already been plenty of criticism of the Peterson versus Zizek encounter, which occurred now more than two years ago. Journalists and analysts observed at the time that the debate was a farce. Still, their meeting remains worthy of more detailed investigation. The 2019 Toronto event is is a useful starting point for investigating political issues that have been prominent in the world for the last 150 years and that profoundly affect our contemporary politics. What Peterson and Zizek hinted at and muddled around are real issues requiring analysis and insights. Peterson in particular was genuinely trying to analyse and refute one powerful modern ideology. That ideology is Marxism, based on the writings of Karl Marx, the German philosopher who died 138 years ago. Unfortunately, Peterson mainly demonstrated his own ideological bias and ignorance. Zizek, meanwhile, only demonstrated the power of performance without a fixed subject. The meeting in April 2019 in Toronto was ostensibly to consider happiness, capitalism versus communism. That was the title. The actual subject, in the case of Peterson, was to publicly expound on his contempt for Marx and Marxism by focusing on a critique of a pamphlet that was published in 1848, the Communist Manifesto written by Karl Marx and supported by his friend Friedrich Engels. Peterson on his own YouTube page actually refers to the video debate footage as Peterson's critique of the Communist Manifesto and it had 360,000 views there. Zizek's intended role might have been clear in principle, but was mysterious in practice. He was probably supposed to be the case for the defence of Marx, as Zizek is familiar with Marxism and has lived experience of so-called communism, having grown up in the Eastern Bloc of Europe, a communist-defined region of the world where a Marxist education was also compulsory. Zizek is an intellectual chameleon, who at different times identifies as Hegelian or communist, Maoist or Lacanian, 
Predictably, for those who know his performance mode, Zizek provided no foil to Peterson. Zizek pursued mostly his own scattered interests. Indeed, his speech from notes was cobbled from fragments of other speeches in other forums. Based on comments on YouTube videos of the debate, the majority of the audience was rarely confused or dazed, though they should have been. Instead, the admirers of Peterson and Zizek continued to admire Peterson and Zizek. Peterson is frequently seen as a valiant opponent of tyranny, Zizek as an enigmatic sage speaking in tongues. Journalists and internet commentators provided the best direct and critical assessment. This included articles in The Guardian, in various forums such as on Facebook discussion groups, and independent YouTube critiques such as by Peter Joseph. Despite the solid critiques of the debate that do exist, contemporary public intellectual discussion never manages to untangle the key issue that Peterson touched on. The issue is actually fundamentally important to modern life and contemporary political ideology. It is the question of the credibility of Karl Marx and his analysis of capitalism. Intimately related to the Marx credibility question is the question whether the former Soviet Union was a manifestation of Marx's ideal communist state. And following this, whether the contemporary phenomena of feminism and so-called cultural Marxism are part of the one same thing, a flawed and oppressive theoretical system as Peterson believed, and as many others believe. Before starting on an in-depth analysis, let me provide some contextual disclaimers. Much of what I'm about to say required a lot of research. I had a broad understanding of the debate subject, but delving into details made this far more complex than I expected. I have not read Peterson's books, nor those of Zizek. I'm reliant mainly on video of the debate and other interviews with both those individuals. I have read the Communist Manifesto and many other books by Marx and Marxists. I am a scholar of Marx, but I don't identify as a Marxist. I also did extensive additional reading on the Russian Revolution and analyses of the so-called communist economy of Russia. And finally, I've spent 20 years analysing Western capitalist economic development and mainstream media bias. For completeness, it is appropriate to briefly review who are Jordan Peterson and Slavoj Zizek. These two men are currently among the world's most famous philosophers slash academics, coming from widely different activism, fame and notoriety. Jordan Peterson, aged 57 at the time of the show, was a qualified psychiatrist and had his first book published over 20 years ago. Around five years ago, he became famous for his opposition to so-called compelled speech in regard to a gender identity bill called C-16 in Canada. Then, in 2018, his book 12 Rules for Life was released. This gave Peterson fame in the realm of personal development, boosting self-esteem, self-worth and personal integrity. 
perhaps most significant in the interim are several YouTube interviews that show Peterson arguing with feminist interviewers about sexual oppression. He argued against feminist views and so rose to hero status among a large group of men, which is a historic event in itself. In recent years, Peterson has spoken on cultural Marxism. He has conflated several terms in doing that, bringing together Marxism, the radical left authors of the 1970s, or postmodernists, and feminism, and implicitly the Me Too movement, as well as intersectional theories, identity politics, critical race theory, and even Black Lives Matter. This can also be included under this umbrella because several of its leaders identify as Marxists. In a nutshell, Peterson is associated with the political right with a conservative position and a critical view of the left. This leaves a vital question that is at the heart of the 2019 show. Is Peterson justified in his assessment of Marxist theories and his views of a relationship between Marx, Marxism and contemporary left-leaning movements? The other protagonist in the Toronto debate, though I use that term ironically, was Slavoj Zizek. Zizek is a Slovenian philosopher, according to his wiki page. He was 70 at the time of the Toronto show. Apparently, he finds inspiration from Hegel and Lacanian psychoanalysis, although other leftisms are also mentioned. He is popular on the left with eclectic analyses of modern culture. He grew up on the dark side of the Iron Curtain and was apparently involved in democratic movements at the time when the Soviet Union was collapsing, around 30 years ago. His most recent controversy was in 2016 when he supported the victory of Donald Trump in the US elections. But as with many things Zizek, he meant it perhaps ironically. Zizek's historic philosophical methods spurred one critic, Edward O'Neill, 20 years ago to say about Zizek. A dizzying array of wildly entertaining and often quite maddening rhetorical strategies are deployed in order to beguile, browbeat, dumbfound, dazzle, confuse, mislead, overwhelm, and generally subdue the reader into acceptance. Wow, sounds so familiar. More recently, critics have labelled Zizek idiosyncratic, a celebrity philosopher, or the slapdash Slovenian. The title of the show was Happiness, Capitalism versus Marxism. That title was misleading, as it was not about happiness and it contained nothing substantial about capitalism versus Marxism. The focus of Peterson was related to his intellectual interest in attacking all things Marxist. He took specific issue with one of the most famous books written by Karl Marx, The Communist Manifesto. Peterson proceeded to make a series of criticisms of Marx, but mostly on one dimension, arguments about profit, reward, social hierarchy. At least Peterson provided substantial claims and opinions on which he could be admired or condemned. Zizek, in his long-established style, proceeded with several dozen seemingly unrelated subjects tied together, but with no direct reference to Peterson's argument. For those who know their Marx and their Marxist theory, 
Jordan Peterson was a sitting duck, but Cezek left him alone to instead go on a rambling, disjointed journey. He touched briefly on all the following. Chinese economic development, godlessness, Donald Trump as the ultimate postmodernist, the brothers Karamazov, 9-11, white neoliberals, identity politics, jealous husbands, Nazis and Jews, Me Too, political correctness, cultural Marxism, French champagne, sexuality, Greeks and democracy, climate change. For the intellectually naive or easily impressed, Zizek and Peterson could seem impressive. A novice could see in Zizek's talking in tongues profound capsules of insight buried in a mess of gestures and asides. I prefer not to. Peterson is the key player of this debate. Peterson made a coherent argument. He had a clearly defined agenda. Zizek's comments and scattered observations are therefore a distraction. Dealing with them or attempting to analyse his words is a waste of time for the purpose of this analysis. Zizek was simply being his apparently enigmatic postmodern self. The Toronto event only has coherent meaning in terms of the subject raised by Peterson on communism and the weakness of his argument because Peterson made a substantial focused argument. I want to go over that argument. The listener obviously needs to know what was claimed, why was it flawed, and what conclusion to draw. Therefore, we will go further than hopefully any other author has done or any article did in the weeks following that event. There is a strategic and politically motivated reason why many criticisms criticisms of Peterson would stop right where the analysis should start. This is because Peterson hit an intellectual wall. That wall was Marx and the Communist Manifesto. Marx is the godfather of the left, the only remaining left radical from the 19th century who is apparently legitimate. Marx is the home turf of the left. A good leftist knows his Marx. But Jordan Peterson is deemed a conservative, a hero of incels and the dark web, things that the left hate or despise. It is enough for leftists to condemn Peterson, as happened, for example, in the Guardian Review immediately after the event by Stephen March. The aim of this analysis is not to condemn Peterson, but to process his views and to incorporate those views where possible in an understanding of a bigger picture to get an answer to a real dilemma. We want to look behind contemporary ideology and get a better understanding of historical political dynamics and contemporary power plays. Let's finally get into that show. We are going to look at Peterson's claims then look at the substance of Marx's assertions in the Communist Manifesto, look at the Soviet Union as an alleged manifestation of Marx's model of revolution, and then perhaps draw some conclusions about Marxism and contemporary radicalism in general, to the extent possible in a limited time frame. We will head upstream on Peterson's claim, going from Marx, who lived roughly 150 years ago, 
to the Re Russian Revolution in 1917 and its aftermath with some tentative examination of the present day. Peterson launches unambiguously into Marx's Communist Manifesto, but Peterson provides little context. Therefore, the very last preparatory thing we need to do before listening to Peterson's words is to have a brief summary of the Communist Manifesto, its context and purpose. The Communist Manifesto was written in 1847 by Karl Marx with the help of Friedrich Engels and then published in 1848. It was a polemical pamphlet intended for a small audience. It is a document that describes the aims and vision of a political party to its members and prospective followers. The members of that political party were young political fugitives, radicals and agitators numbering apparently no more than 100 persons. Marx wrote at a time of great political and economic disturbance in Europe. Britain had become the world's most powerful industrial economy, subject to periodic economic crises as it developed, and this affected the countries of Europe in terms of their trade, in agricultural products especially. Europe had feudal regimes, agricultural societies, peasant labour, but industrialization was happening and there was an emerging capitalist as well as working class. Middle-class radicals demanded greater liberties and democracy. This was resisted by the conservative regimes. Marx outlined in the Communist Manifesto his vision of the economic process or system called capitalism. He explained how it resulted in social and economic chaos. Capitalism disrupted societies like no other system had ever done before. It created a situation where societies would increasingly be dominated by those who controlled capital, while others would become working class, who sold their labour to the capitalist. Feudal lords and kings would disappear, as would the peasantry, as would artisans, skilled professionals and independent small industries. The capitalists got rich, but there would be fewer and fewer of them. The proletariat, or working class, would grow in number, and they got poorer. They would live in subsistence. There would be periodic economic crises due to the competitive system of production and unplanned economy. An overproduction crisis would periodically occur. Thus, there were periods of unemployment and hardship despite abundance. All of these claims are in the Communist Manifesto. Marx believed that, of the many classes and fractions of society, the rising capitalist class would eventually be the ruling class of society, controlling the state and in economic antagonism with the working class. The communists had political and economic agendas and demands. This program is indicated in the manifesto. The ultimate aim of the communists was the overthrow of capitalism to eliminate private property and capital. Crucially, the communists were prepared to support progress for working class conditions. They wanted democracy and various reforms such as, as an end to child labour, free education, things that seem commonplace today. 
but their ultimate aim remained obtaining political and economic supremacy for the working class, expressed as a dictatorship of the proletariat. Capital, or investment, was then to be controlled by the state, and therefore the bourgeoisie, or the capitalist class, would eventually cease to play an economic role in society. There's a lot more in the text, but these are the major details. The so-called communists in 1848 thought that the conflict between the capitalists and working class could be accelerated or brought to a head. Instead, several attempted revolutions in 1848 in Germany and France and elsewhere failed, with rebels executed, jailed or exiled. And thus, Marx too was on the run and famously ended up in London to live the rest of his life. That is where Marx eventually wrote Das Kapital, finishing Volume 1 in 1867, two decades after the Communist Manifesto was written. Marx became increasingly well-known. He participated in working-class movements as an intellectual figurehead. The Communist Manifesto had many reprints in different countries in the 19th century, and so Marx and Engels made additional interesting comments in the prefaces of later editions. Jordan Peterson starts his 30-minute talk by claiming he can refute 10 of the fundamental axioms of the Communist Manifesto. It is unclear what those axioms are because Peterson swings over a range of points and there is no strong delineation. Peterson commences with an argument that Marx and Engels held many of their truths as self-evident, but they did not question their own assumptions. This claim by Peterson is petty. The Communist Manifesto contains a whole chapter criticising various radical views of society. Marx and Engels condemn idealism, fantasies and reformist programs in the midst of the social and economic turmoil happening in the Germany of the 1840s. But the use of an expression like assumptions by Peterson does not capture what happens in the Communist Manifesto or indeed in Marx's later analysis. Marx's major genuine assumption is the expectation or vision that the working class can triumph over capitalism. That is certainly an assumption but not a central insight of the document. Peterson then proceeds to one of the famous claims by Marx that history is to be viewed primarily as an economic class struggle in minute 1140. After playing with some wishy-washy speculative categories such as economic cooperation versus competition, Peterson reverses his initial argument. Peterson exceeds that Marx is actually right. Peterson uses the expression, This is to give the devil his due. But it is only a superficial retreat, because the struggle of humanity... It's deeper than history, it's biology itself. So in the process of refuting Marx, Peterson acknowledges Marx's argument has truth, but is too limited. According to Peterson... It's an underestimation of the seriousness of the problem. In other words... 
Marx underestimates how ingrained hierarchies are and the tendency for wealth slash power to centralise anyway. Winner takes all is a biological normal. Peterson again. It is the case that hierarchical structures dispossess those people who are at the bottom, those creatures who are at the bottom, speaking, say, of animals. It is not immediately obvious, but Peterson is tying himself in knots. Scattered over the breadth of his subsequent 30-minute talk, he argues that hierarchies are bigger than class conflict because they are fundamental in the animal kingdom, of which humans are a part. Hierarchies are about power in the animal kingdom, and some suffer disadvantaged. But later, he argues that hierarchies are generally justified among humans because hierarchies obtain from reward to effort and skill. Peterson effectively says that economic unfairness is unimportant because biology. And anyway, in economics, everything is fair. Firstly, Marx's arguments are about human economic relations, not about ahistorical biology. Marx examined modern economic forces and their impact on social organisation. Peterson changes the terms of reference to animal life from human life. This is spurious, unfair and ultimately farcical. Peterson then tries a different angle. There, there, there are far more reasons that human beings struggle than their economic class struggle. Human beings struggle with themselves, with the malevolence that's inside themselves. According to Peterson. That is a true statement, but banal and irrelevant. To repeat, Marx was talking, roughly 150 years ago, about a specific thing in human social existence, the relations of production, economic relations that were happening then and that he thought would shape world history. Marx argued that capitalism was generating social conflicts about the distribution of socially generated wealth. That is Marx's subject. Peterson's subject, personal morality, guilt, anger, emotions, are certainly important in an individual life. But that's his specialty. It's a different subject. And neither emotions nor morality have dictated the broad picture of human history and economic development. This is therefore a case of Peterson changing the subject while pretending to engage with the subject. Peterson then points out, We're also actually always at odds with nature, and this never seems to show up in Marx. Here we see Peterson following another spurious transcendent issue. Any other struggle. Marx was not interested in nature. Peterson then immediately changes tack entirely. He suggests that hierarchies are a good thing. There's also very little understanding in the Communist Manifesto that any of the, like, say, hierarchical organizations that human beings have put together might have a positive element. According to Peterson, this statement is both misleading in terms of Peterson's concept of hierarchy, but also false about Marx. Marx thought that the spread of capitalism 
would liberate humanity from various oppressive conditions globally. Marx's eulogy on capitalism also contradicts the frequent claim that Marx hated capitalism or thought that it was evil. He did not claim that. Rather than being moralistic, he generally attempted to be scientific. The bourgeoisie cannot exist without constantly revolutionizing the instruments of production and thereby the relations of production and with them the whole relations of society. Constant revolutionizing of production, uninterrupted disturbance of all social conditions, everlasting uncertainty and agitation distinguish the bourgeois epoch from all earlier ones. This is an important statement that we will return to at another time. As an aside, think today about the computer revolution, social media, the destruction of traditional media, the rise of Uber and Amazon, massive investment in home delivery, changes in sexual identity politics, and you get a picture that the revolution is indeed continuing as Marx predicted. Marx identified that capitalism generated a huge quantity of commodities on a global scale. It would make people more cosmopolitan in their consumption. Capitalism created incredible potential for social and economic advancement. That was on the positive leisure. On the negative side was that producers were in competition and there would be many losers, with the greatest victims being the workers, the poor at various times. Marx saw lowering wages and working conditions and rising hours of work and then periodic economic crises that threw people out of their jobs and destroyed entire industries. Capitalism had liberated the productive capacity of humanity but could not deliver systemically, fairly and continuously. So Peterson's argument is yet again quite detached from the substance of what was written in the Communist Manifesto which he seeks to critique. Peterson had, in his earliest remarks, demonstrated his ignorance and he continued to demonstrate it for 30 minutes. For example, Peterson returns to a theme that he knows well, that of hierarchies even though that term does not strictly match Marx's argument. Peterson says, Hierarchical structures are actually necessary to solve complicated social problems. Peterson has successfully used this hierarchy argument against feminists. That tells us what hierarchy concept he is referencing. He means, in an organisation, jobs are paid according to skill, not according to discrimination on the basis of gender. Men get paid more, Peterson argues, because they do more skilled work, thus a hierarchy of income. Human hierarchies are not fundamentally predicated on power, according to Peterson in minute 1640. Again, this is an argument by Peterson, derivative of the previous, that is going nowhere, simply because the fantasy concept of hierarchy that Peterson uses is incompatible with the concept developed by Marx in the Communist Manifesto, which deals with a key driving relationship of production and class categories. Certainly, that relationship results in inequality of reward. 
it results in great wealth for one group, theoretically, and poverty or subsistence for another group. To label this a hierarchy is to confuse the two concepts, that of Peterson and that of Marx. It is a dead end, it is spurious and misleading. And finally, it shows that Peterson has not engaged with Marx's argument. Peterson then proceeds on the subject of exploitation, which is similar to previous confused claims. According to Peterson, You don't rise to a position of authority that's reliable in a human society primarily by exploiting other people. It's a very unstable means of obtaining power. This comment from Peterson is mixed up with his argument on hierarchy, but this claim specifically meets a lot of laughter from the audience. Peterson is clearly pissed off, but ultimately he gets off very lightly. Demonstrating a tendency to repeat himself, Peterson returns to this theme later in his diatribe. So around minute 24 he says, If you're running a business and, and it's a successful business, first of all you're a bloody fool to explo exploit your workers. This statement, made with extraordinary confidence, is part of Peterson's determination that Marx must have been an ignoramus. You either know nothing whatsoever about how an actual business works, or you refuse to know anything about how an actual business works. So Peterson's argument is that exploitation cannot exist for very long because nobody would accept such an arrangement. And once again, he has fundamentally misunderstood the cohesive and well-articulated argument that Marx made. Peterson is talking about wages paid to different workers in a company or government department. Marx was talking about the likes of Jeff Bezos, an entrepreneur who started a company called Amazon who recently earned $300 million a day on the basis of something he did 20 years ago. The average US male wage today is $20 per hour. Marx's definition is supposed to be scientific, analytical. Peterson's definition is moral and particular. The key point about the difference in definitions of exploitation is that Peterson does not understand Marx's definition and or does not want to understand. How exploitation occurs, its degree, its conditions, the hours of labour, safety standards, rights, are all issues that have historically been contested and sometimes with violence or force. The key point in Marx's theory is that exploitation occurs between capitalists and the workforce. The investing class attempts to get the maximum surplus out of the people who work in factories and businesses. What is that maximum? It depends on the social, economic and legislated conditions that apply. In Marx's era, there was terrible exploitation, with capitalists and others getting rich, while the working class often laboured in appalling conditions. Let's look at a concrete example that was happening in the 19th century when Marx wrote his book. British capitalism was in the ascendant, and the primary example of that ascendancy was the cotton spinning industry. The Indian cotton industry, including the production of raw cotton 
and the manufacture of cotton products had been famous throughout the world. Indian cotton products were imported to Europe and to Britain. According to our wiki page, India had a 25% share of the global textile trade in the early 18th century. Bengal accounted for more than 50% of textiles imported by the Dutch from Asia. The British government put restrictions on Indian cotton manufacturers to aid their own manufacturing. British businesses then began their expansion through investment. British manufacture of cotton then became the most successful, the most productive in the world. Britain also insisted that India accept Britain's exports of cotton products. The Indian industry was consequently decimated. Indian workers lost their employment and faced starvation. There was no minimum wage. There was no welfare for them. By 1800, cotton products represented 40% of British manufactured exports. But this did not mean that things were easy for English workers. The capitalists of the cotton industry had a workforce that worked up to 18 hours a day and manufacturers replaced skilled adult males with unskilled women or children wherever they could. By the 1830s or 30 years later, the United States had become the world's largest raw cotton producer. The workforce was composed of slaves who represented an astonishing 50% of the population of the southern United States. In the present day, in advanced societies, people can comp become complacent about working conditions because there is so much regulation. But many people suffered and fought for decades before conditions were regulated and improved. So, seen in this context, Peterson's argument that exploitation can't happen for very long is entirely spurious. Marx's polemical writing on the subject of profit is one of the subjects that Peterson attacks in his talk. What's wrong with profit exactly? What, what's the problem with profit? He asks this in an indignant, bitchy way. Well, the idea from the Marxist perspective was that profit was theft. To get additional context, I had a look at the Communist Manifesto and in all 68 pages of my copy, there are only six references to profit. The word is used six times. This includes in endnotes, in footnotes, and in an attached document. Even the expression surplus is used only two times. The word capital, however, is used 93 times. The Communist Manifesto is bundled with another document. In the draft of a Communist Confession of Faith, page 36 of my coffee, what is the proletariat? The proletariat is that class in society which lives entirely from the sale of its labour and does not draw profit from any kind of capital, whose weal and woe, whose life and death, whose sole existence depends on the demand for labour, hence on the changing state of business 
on the vagaries of unbridled competition. This statement from Marx is a fairly typical use of the word profit and it is not obsessed with a moral criticism of profit itself. It is meant to be objective and again the actual original text highlights that Peterson is fighting with ghosts of his own construction. Peterson reaches a pinnacle in his farcical critique of the Communist Manifesto when he asks the following. Well, how can you grow if you don't have a profit? Minute 26. That statement is a direct consequence of Peterson's previous statements that profit is considered theft by Marx. Economic growth would indeed disappear if there was no profit in a modern capitalist society where profit is more or less the motive force of production. But Marx does not advocate for the elimination of profit. His argument is not so simplistic. Primarily, what Marx did was highlight that profit, or rather surplus value, comes from the collective enterprise in which a group of people produces the goods of society while another group controls the circulation of capital. The desire to make money is at the heart of capitalist dynamics and further down the line the anarchic character investment leads to periodic economic crises. And finally Peterson asks rhetorically, if capitalism is so productive, as Marx Engels themselves say, then why not allow the system to run wild? Wouldn't the logical thing be just to let the damn system play itself out? This last statement is in effect another acute confession by Peterson that not only does he not understand the Communist Manifesto, he understands none of the economic claims of Marx. The simple response to Peterson is this. Marx indicated that capitalism is incredibly productive, but it is also destructive. The destructiveness of capitalism is precisely most severe when it runs wild. Capitalism running wild as a chaotic market-driven system overproduces. It creates recessions in which millions lose their employment in which social resources go to waste. That would be the response to Peterson's simplistic question. Many recessions throughout the last 150 years, the Great Depression of the 1930s, the 1970s, the global financial crisis of 2009, even if you disagreed with Marx's argument about the contradictory character of capitalism, you at least have to acknowledge the existence of the argument and that it is plausible if examined. Up to this point, Peterson has repeatedly demonstrated that he had not read or understood any of the Communist Manifesto nor even a summary of Marxist economic theory. Does Peterson make any statements at all that have some validity or critical substance? Actually, he does make one valid point, and it is a subject that is vitally important. In his criticism of Marx, Peterson raises the subject of Russia and the Russian Revolution, which occurred in 1917 and its aftermath. 
Peterson assumes that you have a knowledge of the Russian Revolution, so let me provide a brief background before we continue. 100 years ago, the Russian Empire was the largest political domain on the planet. It was industrially backward, but had been a big player in historical events in the 1800s, in particular militarily. Russia was industrialising, but slowly, and subject to much economic disruption. Vladimir Lenin was a Russian left-wing radical who had been involved in attempts to violently overthrow the Russian monarchy around 1900. Radicals like Lenin and others like Stalin and Trotsky were fanatical admirers of Karl Marx and they wanted to follow his philosophical, economic and programmatic inspiration. They were focused on revolution. They were Marxists. In 1917, there was a historic opportunity for Lenin to fulfil his plan. It was the second last year of World War I. The German military had defeated the Russian military on the Eastern Front. Russia had been fighting on the side of Britain and France. Lenin had been in exile and returned to Russia via Germany and came to head the Bolshevik Party. He had a pol populist slogan, Peace, Bread and Land. In other words, an end to war with Germany, feed the hungry and give the peasants land to cultivate. His agenda was also a revolutionary overthrow of capitalism to re be replaced by a so-called dictatorship of the proletariat or the working class. This was a concept that Marx had espoused in the Communist Manifesto. The Bolsheviks eventually came to power in a coup and a civil war ensued. Opponents of the Bolsheviks were backed by foreign countries, though not Germany. The Bolshevik-led government fought their enemies using the newly formed Red Army. The new regime faced a crisis, trying to run the economy using non-market principles. The economy also faced a severe contraction due in part to resistance and chaos. Those who resisted or questioned the new Red Regime were sent to Siberia or murdered or starved to death. Lenin himself died of natural causes in 1924. With the rise of Stalin as a dictator in 1929, the level of persecution of opponents, real and imagined, became epic. Purges of political opponents and military leaders continued up to the beginning of World War II. The author, George Orwell, is said to have based his novel Animal Farm on the events and culture of this period in Russian history. But notably, the Russian economy grew strongly in terms of basic industrialization and militarization too. Back to Jordan Peterson. In the Great Debate of 2019, about a hundred years after the Russian Revolution. Peterson cites the example of Russia in his talk and highlights firstly the discrimination against people who might be bourgeois or have bourgeois blood, in other words, the middle class. And you have an implicit idea that all of the good is on the side of the proletariat and all of the evil is on the side of the bourgeoisie. According to Peterson in Minute 19. Peterson says... Well, and that's, 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 naive, that's naive beyond comprehension. So Peterson argues that Marx saw the bourgeoisie as evil and the proletariat as virtuous. 
Well, this may be true of many contemporary radicals, left-wing and in some cases Marxist. Again, if looking at Marx's analysis of capitalism and its dominant classes, then Peterson has misrepresented the original text and its explanatory power about social classes. However, Peterson's argument is now also about the Russian Revolution. He has raised, firstly, a relatively minor detail of the Russian Revolution, but we should consider it given the overall epic scale of oppression, discrimination and hardship that occurred in Russia following the ascendancy of the communists. Testimonies from the period in Russia in the 1920s indicate that there emerged a cult of the working class and a kind of persecution of the so-called bourgeoisie or middle class, the rich, the relatively privileged. This was a strategy of the new rulers as they feared the resurgence of a class society based on the desire for private gain. In the Russian Revolution, there was an overt aim to manifest a Marx-inspired scenario of the end of classes. Lenin, at least in the abstract, wanted to eliminate the capitalist or entrepreneurial class. All power and all the control of wealth was to be in the hands of the state. There was to be a flattening of class distinctions. This cult of the working class was certainly derived from Marx's writing, from his analysis. Marx and Engels advocated for a proletarian revolution that would theoretically bring the working class to power and that the control of social surplus would or should then be centred in the state. The entrepreneurial social strata, or capitalists, would thereby firstly be repressed and then eliminated, but only in terms of their previous social function, not in the sense of persecution, at least not in theory. Certainly, in the Soviet Union, under Lenin and later Stalin, there was an implication that counter-revolutionary sentiment and actions were considered dangerous. Those who were labelled counter-revolutionary or opponents of the revolution were sent into exile or killed. Peterson also mentions the persecution of the so-called kulaks in communist Russia. The kulaks were broadly a social strata of people who had perhaps started off as peasants but raised themselves up in wealth and power prior to the revolution. The kulaks were not necessarily rich. Peasants who had managed to acquire a cow and maybe employed several other peasants were considered to be kulaks. The new socialist-slash-communist government saw these kulaks as an obstacle to their economic programs of creating collective industrial farms and collecting the surplus wealth from agricultural production. Peterson says, And about 1.8 million of them were exiled. Uh, about 400,000 were killed. This Ukrainian famine, also called the Holodomor, was a consequence of the forced requisition of grain from the peasants of the Ukraine in particular, not due to poor harvests. Starving of the peasants was a deliberate act of genocide, according to credible sources, the peasants themselves. Despite not providing much analytical detail, Peterson sees the persecution and deaths that he cites as an indication that Marx was wrong with his class concept, which lies at the heart of Marx's idea of capitalism. Peterson again. 
And so the binary class struggle idea, that was a bad idea. As with everything Peterson had said in the polemic to that moment, it was a claim that is unsupported by serious examination. He alleges a fundamental connection between the concept of class struggle developed in 1847 and killing millions of people 70 years later. It is not disputed here that millions died variously through economic incompetence or persecution or deliberate starvation in the Soviet Union. But Peterson has turned such events into a simplistic issue that he can answer with a single sentence. Peterson has certainly hit on an important issue, but it needs fair treatment, and that is difficult. Indeed, we have an issue in that this program is not long enough to deal honestly and thoroughly with the profound connection between Marx and the Soviet Union and beyond. Nor should allegations or summary statements be made that cannot be substantiated. Two things need to be repeated. The people who initiated the Russian Revolution in 1917 and then created the Soviet Union in 1924 and then caused millions to die through starvation or overwork modelled their revolution on Marx's concepts. They knew Marx's ideas very well and they attempted to strictly adhere to Marx's economic and strategic concepts. Marx's concepts are summarised in the polemical pamphlet called The Communist Manifesto of 1848, but also in other places Marx wrote, such as in the newspaper that he published around the same time, the Rheinische Zeitung. The first step in the revolution by the working class is to raise the proletariat to the position of ruling class to win the battle of democracy, according to Marx. This comment is ambiguous and remained ambiguous in the decades that followed publication of the Communist Manifesto. Democracy was a demand 150 years ago of radicals, including especially the bourgeoisie, the middle class, it was not something that existed in 1848 when it was written. The communists wanted to take advantage of democracy as a stepping stone, but as the working class was not itself in the majority, they would not win supremacy merely by numbers initially. The Communist Manifesto expressed the following aim of the communists as a program of the working class. The proletariat will use its political supremacy to rest by degree all capital from the bourgeoisie, to centralize all instruments of production in the hands of the state, i.e., of the proletariat organized as the ruling class, and to increase the total productive forces as rapidly as possible. The program included abolition of property and land, a heavy progressive or graduated income tax, abolition of all rights of inheritance, centralization of credit in the hands of the state, by means of a national bank with state capital and an exclusive monopoly, centralisation of the means of communication and transport in the hands of the state. Was the Soviet Union a true embodiment of Marx's ideas in the Communist Manifesto? Peterson here has hit on an old controversy. Did Russia embody the essence of Marx's idea? It is a subject that has been disputed for decades and is perhaps the greatest issue in the realm of Marxism. The commanding heights of the economy, large companies were nationalised. That seems to follow Marx's prescription. 
and later the regime nationalised more or less every private enterprise. The new government of Lenin's Bolsheviks also had to find a way to feed the population and to get revenue to industrialise. A means to secure both these agendas was getting their hands on the grain produced by the peasants, which could then be distributed to workers as well as sold overseas to get foreign currency. Russia simply did not have much else to sell at this time in the 1920s. Kulaks, which really extended to the entire peasant population of the Ukraine, were persecuted and apparently millions of farmers and rural families died from starvation. Would Marx have condemned what the Soviet leaders did or would he have approved? Well, that depends on which part you mean. Or perhaps it is disingenuous to attempt to separate the elements of what happened. It is what it is. It was a real communist-inspired agenda with its ugly, grotesque elements too. Certainly, in much of his writing, Marx was appalled by the actions of rulers in Britain, for example, in reducing wages, in employing children or starving populations. But everyone is a humanitarian until they are put into position of power where their sentiment is tested by real-world policy responses. We know that Marx believed in action to turn theory into praxis, to change the world. As Peterson claims... This is a call for revolution, and not just revolution, but bloody violent revolution and the overthrow of all, uh, overthrowing of all existent social structures. Marx did indeed believe that violence and bloody conflict would be inevitable to achieve a working-class dictatorship. Marx also seemed to think that all opportunities to overthrow capitalism should be seized. The men who made the Russian Revolution were in many ways the same type as Marx and Engels had been in 1848. Fanatical, zealous, assured, monomaniacs. Russia was the poster child of communist success, an endorsement too of Marx's vision. As a consequence, today there are still activists and political parties and leaders who claim to admire people such as Lenin. But the obverse is also true. People of the right, such as Jordan Peterson, have used the atrocities and ultimate decline of the Soviet Union as a proxy for all things Marx. The collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, now 30 years ago for them, represents a vindication that market systems are far better than Marxist communism. This too is simplistic and dishonest. Russia's revolutionary leaders implemented social reforms that were radical for their time. This includes, for example, freer divorce laws, legal abortion rights in 1920, the encouragement of women's participation in the labour force through provision of maternity leave, free childcare in workplaces, adult education programs. There was even decriminalisation of homosexuality. Although these ideas were flawed in their implementation and sometimes rolled back, it nevertheless put revolutionary Russia ahead of Western countries by decades in terms of social reforms. These reforms deserve a critical scrutiny. Peterson does not consider it. The key subject of the Toronto debate between Jordan Peterson and Slavoj Zizek was Peterson's attempt 
to analyse and destroy Marx's arguments in the Communist Manifesto. I argue, additionally, that his reason for doing this is because of his antagonism with left-wing ideology, with Marxism and probably with feminists. In addition, he has the noble intention of identifying the source of the oppressive character of the Soviet Union, that regime that existed from 1917 to 1991 in what was the Russian Empire. Peterson attempted to bring Marx down, and he made a clumsy mess of it. Peterson portrays Marx as a fool and the Communist Manifesto as a stupid tract. The Communist Manifesto is indeed a flawed document. It contains claims that are outrageous, unfounded, misleading and outright wrong. But Peterson fails to engage with the most important weaknesses in the Manifesto or misrepresents the arguments. There is something to be discovered, some objective truth or some insight. Peterson just does not do it except in terms of citing the Soviet Union as an example of manifest communist barbarity. Key claims in the Communist Manifesto that represent only 1% of the totality of Marx's ideas have impassioned millions of people and been projected onto the canvas of world history. Marx's complete analysis of capitalism is extraordinary. It is the main part of what has made him so important but he also advocated for a revolutionary anti-capitalist response to capitalism. This can be interpreted as either deeply disturbing or exciting. It is exciting because it gives hope to millions of dissatisfied people that they can wrestle power and wealth from elites who are apparently responsible for their dissatisfaction. It is also horrifying because the Russian Revolution and the example that it set for communism in action. There are major weaknesses in Marx's writing, perhaps greatest in his polemical work, and the best example of that is the Communist Manifesto. There is one overriding falsehood in Marx and Marxism that I suspect has never been exposed. If this falsehood has ever been exposed by any author, then I'm not aware of that. It is very important and could change your view of history and of contemporary political reality. And that falsehood or mythology is due exactly to the duality of the debate over Marx, those who support or worship and those who denigrate and deny. And so, perversely, Jordan Peterson's sentiment about Marxism remains, in a sense, correct despite being wrong in every detail of his critique of Marx's economics. This is something to be revealed in future episodes.